Um, I went to school here, and so did my wife, who is right here. There we go. Okay, cool. Yeah. So my wife, her name is Amy, and unfortunately she couldn't be here tonight. Uh, we, we are taking a class at a church back in Dallas, and so she had to be there. Uh, but we both, we both came to SFA. We were both involved in grace, and the Lord used Crosspoint specifically uh, to really mold us and to shape us and to just put us on a completely different path. Like I'll tell you, being in the, the pew for the first time at Crosspoint, I would never, ever have expected to be where I am right now. Like I had no clue what seminary was. Um, if you told me Jew and Gentile, I was still struggling with that sort of thing, right? And so God just rescued me uh, whenever I thought I was walking with him. Um, but so yeah, so we, we came here. We were, we were here for all four years. And uh, for the past four years, we've been in Dallas. I've been finishing up school, and I'm like to the tail end of it, and I'm so excited. Um, how, how many seniors do we have in the room? All right. The, graduating this semester, keep your hands up. Okay, got a couple. Graduating next semester, how many? All right, I'm in the boat with you guys. I'm done next semester. We're almost there. I'm feeling senioritis pretty hard. Um, but yeah, so we've been there for the past four years. Amy works in finance, and she's been doing an awesome job there. And uh, it's been a good season for us. But let's go ahead and dig into the text tonight. We're going to be in Romans chapter 7. And the thing that I'm thankful for is that you have pastors who have been just, just loading you down with context and helping you to understand the flow of the book. And they've just been doing a really good job of building that out for you. And so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time catching us up to speed. We've been going through six chapters of Romans so far, and so I'm just going to kind of piggyback on what they've done so far, okay? But I do want to just refresh our minds. Romans chapter 6 is where Paul brings the gospel to a personal level and says, look, what happened in Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection means that you are now free from the tyranny of sin, and then he walks through the implications of that, what it looks like to live the holy life, to live the righteous life. Um, so that's what he's talked about. You've been freed from sin. And he has this verse, verse 14, where he says something that he picks up again in 17. Take a look at it with me. Verse 14 in chapter 6, he says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And that's, that's the part that's going to provoke the discussion in chapter 7. You are no longer under law. What does that mean? And what does it mean for a Jew in the first century who loves God, who's been walking with God, who's been zealous for the law in the past? What does it mean for that man to now say, for the people of God, for the believers who are in Christ, the law has now been set aside? So he's going to discuss that in Romans chapter 7. And quite frankly, this is one of those... Uh, mind-bender chapters in the Bible. Uh, whenever Terrell told me that he was going to give me Romans chapter 7, I was like, all right, cool, what, what verses? And he's like, oh, the whole thing. I was like, all right, cool. You taking a break that weekend or what? Um, but so that I want to keep it pretty simple tonight, and I want to just focus in on the two primary ideas in Romans chapter 7. All right, so the two primary ideas are found first one through six talks about how the law is temporary. Verses one through six, Paul lays out his argument. He says, look, the law is temporary. It was always a temporary means in the plan of, plan of God. And then in seven through 25, he talks about the limitations of the law. Why this thing was never meant to solve the problem fully. That's what he gets out there, okay? So we're gonna just 
focus on uh, chapter 7. We're going to look at those two ideas. Um, yeah, but first we really need to preface by talking about what the law is, right? You guys have heard a little bit about this, but I want to focus on two primary functions of the law. When we talk about the law, we're talking about the Mosaic law, right? So that's Genesis through Deuteronomy in the fronts of your Bibles. That tends to be territory that most of us don't tread in very much, right? Um, so it's a little bit unfamiliar. And anytime we start to talk about the law, we're like, what? What is that again? So if we think back to Jews before Christ, there was two, two primary functions of the law for them, okay? The first was that the law was the basis of their relationship with God. This was like the foundation. So if we were to go back, we could find different texts that say, where God says, I will be your God and you will be my people, all right? And Genesis through Deuteronomy is sort of like the magnum opus of God committing himself to Israel and saying, you are my people and you will serve out my purposes in the world, okay? So it's the basis for relationship with God. And the second function is that the law shaped the righteous life for the Jew. And so if you were a Jew before Christ came, you're in the community and you're wondering, what does the righteous life look like? What does obedience to God look like? Your elders would say, let's go to the law. Let's look at how Moses has written out the words of God, the commands of God, that these will lead us as a community and as individuals in faithful obedience to God. So with that in mind, the fact that Paul says, you are no longer under law, that God's people are no longer under the Mosaic law, that's a significant claim. And he has to explain himself, okay? And basically what he's going to say in chapter 7 is, there's been no huge drastic change. The law was always temporary, and the law was always limited, and someone better has come, okay? So that's what he's going to trot out in chapter 7. So let's go ahead and take a look at the first six verses in chapter 7. Paul says, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in our flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code. So the law is temporary. And the way that that Paul decides to describe this is by using the analogy of marriage. In the same way that a wife is freed from her previous relationship when that husband dies, so you and I have died in Christ to the law. So that's a little bit weird to talk about having died in Christ, but if we think about the first few verses in chapter 6, Paul talks about you have died with Christ. This means that sin that used to rule over you, you're dead to that now. And in the same way here, law that used to govern the people of God, you've died to that now, and now there's a new way. Okay? So law, the law was always temporary. It was always 
something that was going to be superseded. It was going to be replaced, just like a marriage um, where one of the spouses dies, okay? So that's the how. That, how has the law been set aside? Through being united to Christ's death. And now we have a new life, and we walk a new path, and there's a new relationship. Okay, so take a look again at verse 4 with me. He says, you have died to the law through the body of Christ. And then he talks about the why. He talks about the purpose of having died to the law. He says, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. So going back to the analogy, just as a woman who was married before and her husband died, and now she's free game. She can remarry and it's totally kosher. It's okay. In the same way, believers have died to the law. The law no no longer governs their life and they're freed up to have a new relationship, one with the one who's been raised from the dead, namely Jesus Christ. And then he talks about a further reason why. Take a look at four again. He says, in order that we may bear fruit for God. So the fruit of the righteous life, the righteousness lived out in flesh, what we all long for as believers, that is found in a union with Jesus Christ. Okay, so I just want to sum up this, this chunk. The main point of this first chunk of Romans 7 is that the temporary law has now been replaced by being united to Christ. The law was always temporary, and now it's been replaced by being united to Christ, having a personal relationship with him. And just like the law used to be the basis of a relationship with God for the Jews before Christ, so now, after Christ's life, death, and his resurrection, now union with Christ is the basis of a relationship with God. The law no longer is that, that foundation. Christ is. And in the same way that the law used to shape the righteous life of the Jew, so now, after Christ's life, death, and resurrection, union with Christ is now what shapes, empowers, and motivates the Christian's righteous life. So the law has been surpassed. This was temporary, and now something better has come, and it's replaced it. So we want to naturally kind of ask the question, well, what does the righteous life look like then? You know, like if this is a new way, and we're no longer following the old code, so what's the new way look like? How do I live that righteous life? And I want to preach that. (laughs) I really do. Uh, But I can't because it's not in this text. Um, He kind of hints at it. Take a look at verse 6 with me. He says, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code. And so that's his little little teaser, his trailer. Um, He's going to pick that point up in chapter 8 where he walks through and talks about life by the Spirit. How does righteousness get lived out in the life of a Christian believer? But before he gets there, he has to deal with sort of a conundrum, okay? Because he said something that could be interpreted negatively, and he has to explain himself. So take a look at verse 5. It says, For while we were living in our flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. And so it would be easy to hear that and think, okay, so I'm confronted with the law and the law arouses sinful passions in me? What, what does that then say about the law? Is the law sinful in and of itself? And this is, this is really the conundrum that Paul is just going to spend the rest of this chapter trying to work through and trying to explain. So take a look at verse 7. He says, What then shall we say? 
that the law is sin? By no means is his answer. And then he's going to trot it out from there. Okay. And so what Paul's going to do in this latter chunk, in chunk two, he's going to explain how the law is pure, the law is good, the law is righteous. It's a gift from God. Okay. So you have to like hold that over here. But then over here, we have some other dynamics at play that make the law a cause of our death. It's not the answer to our problem. In fact, it actually draws the problem to the surface, okay? So before we begin to dig through all of those verses, 7 through 25, I just want to put the main point in front of you just so you can kind of keep it in your head as we go along, okay? So the main point in this last chunk is that the law is limited. And the limitation of the law is it cannot change the sin-sick heart. And because it can't change the sin-sick heart, humanity is left for dead. If we're just thinking about the law, like if, if we're not talking about Christ yet, we're just thinking about the law, then humanity is left for dead, okay? So let's go ahead and start digging through. Um, yeah, let's go ahead and read verses 7 through 12. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment, this is the irony, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death for me. And this is how. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Okay. So, Paul clearly answers his question in verse 7. Is the law sin? He says, absolutely not. In fact, in the strongest language available to him, he says, no. And then he just talks about the nature of the law, that it's holy, it's righteous, and it's good. And this is something that's important for us to remember, because anytime that we kind of go back to the Old Testament and we see things that are like, ooh, that's pretty violent, or what do I do with that? You know, there's, there's going to be things that we read through and it's difficult to understand and we have like a negative reaction to it and we want to push it away and we want to say it's less than. But we can never do that. The, the law, the Old Testament, all of God's revelation is holy, it's righteous, it's good, it's a gift from God and we need to just work to understand it. What the problem is in Romans 7, as he's talking about sin and the law and death, is that sin reacts in a perverse way to the revelation of God. Whenever he talks about sin, he's talking about it in almost like a personified way. It's like a tyrannical force, like it's like a dictator that governs human behavior. And whenever a person interacts with the law, with the revelation of God, they are moved by sin, by that impulse that's within all of us to react in a negative way, to rebel. And this is, this is a root problem. Okay. So we can, we can really see this principle play out with a lot of different things. So how many people like good food in here? 
You, everybody should be raising your hand. Unless you just like eat mac and cheese all the time, which that might be the case for some of you. Um, all of us like good food. That's a good gift from God, right? Everybody's talking now, huh? Talking about dinner. Um, so yeah, the, food is a good gift from God. But all of us know and have seen examples of, we've experienced in the bathroom, right? Uh, the effects of abusing the good gift of food, right? And food can even destroy a human body, which is crazy, right? Because we need food to eat. We need food to live. But it can destroy us. So this is an example of a good gift of God and sin within us reacts to that in a perverse way and it makes us a cause of death for us. Okay? Another example uh, is sexuality. Sexuality is a wonderful gift from God. Um, But all of us know that sin within us can lead us to react to that, to take that and treat it in a perverse way. And to take that outside the context of marriage, to take that outside the context of heterosexuality, whatever it is, and to abuse that. And that becomes a cause of death to us and to others. And I could go on and on, right? Alcohol is a gift from God. It's in the Bible, I promise. Um, If you want to abstain, that's fine. But it's a good gift from God. And it certainly can be one of those things where sin as a ruling principle within us leads us to react to it in a perverse way, and it becomes a cause of death for us. So it's the same thing with the law, okay? The law is good. Sin within us leads us to react negatively, to rebel. Let's keep on going. Um, Actually, you know what? No, I want to show you like a little diagram that I came up with, um, just to kind of illustrate how this works with the law, okay? So the God gives from on high the law to Moses, and he carries it down to the people. And this is repeated over and over and over throughout all generations. The people of God are confronted with the law, and they become aware of God's righteous requirement. And then whenever that happens, that power of sin, that tyrannical force of sin, gets awakened within the people of God. And that leads, us, that leads them to sinful rebellion, which then the law condemns, And then they're in a position of death. Death being separation from fellowship with God, separation from walking with him faithfully, obediently unto eternal life. So this is the way that sin reacts perversely to the law. And this is why the law is limited, because it can't address the root problem. It can only command and condemn. Okay? So let's keep on going. Verses 13 through 25 are going to feel like we're running through the woods and branches are slapping in the face, okay? Like there's just so much going on and he repeats so many different things so many different ways. You're like, what are you talking about? Um, And so I just want to help us walk through this by taking it in chunks and explaining a bit at a time. It's going to be helpful to think of Paul as speaking as a Jew under the law apart from Christ, He's showing the limitation of the law, and he's trying to paint best-case scenario. Best-case scenario before Christ, for the people of God under the law, this is how it plays out, okay? So let's read it through that lens. Pick it up in verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me, that being the law? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, 
and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold under sin. For I don't even understand my own actions, understand or approve or desire. That could be there. Um, I don't understand my own actions. For I, not, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. So, Paul, speaking in terms of being a Jew under the law apart from Christ, is saying that the law it comes and it provokes sin and it shows sin to be sin. So if we ever get into the pathway of thinking, humans are not that bad. Humans are not that bad. You know, that whole doctrine of sin, that seems a little heavy-handed. Um, we can just take a look at the example of a, of a child, right? Um, a child and their parent just tells them, don't do X, right? And you've, you've all seen this, don't do X. And the kid just kind of looks at them and then they do X, like right away, right? That's not just like, eh, I'm funny. It's like a revelation of the nature of our heart. And we all live that regularly. Right? That manifests in our behavior regularly. That's what the law draws out. It draws out that there's something wrong in here, and it makes it clear. <clears throat> and Paul's talking about, best case scenario, I actually want to do the law of God. As a Jew, under the law, apart from Christ, I actually want to do the law. I, I know that it's good. I know that it's righteous. But sin leads me in a different path. Okay? So, Let's keep on going, all right? 17 through 20, or 16 through 20, sorry. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So it's important to, to see that in verses 17 and 20, Paul's not saying, hey, look, it's not really my fault, it's sin. You know, excuse me from the blame. He's saying, if we're considering the different factors that are in play here, the Mosaic law, my desire to fulfill it, and then sin, this is the decisive factor. That ruling principle of sin that's what leads to rebellion and death over and over and over. That's what the root problem is. Okay. So again, the main point in this part of Romans 7 is that the law is limited. Okay. The law can command righteousness. It can condemn unrighteousness. But it cannot solve the root problem. It cannot heal the sin-sick heart. Let's go ahead and finish out this passage. Paul's just basically going to sum up in this little chunk right here. Verses 21 through 25. So, I find it to be a law or a principle that when I do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And so, under the law, 
as a righteous Jew who wants so badly to do what is right and good and holy and just before God, just can't, over and over, fails. And the law can do nothing to solve that problem. And so it's with that situation, with that desperation that he cries out in verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he points forward to the answer to that. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he wraps up the discussion with this. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So, the law is temporary. Our death in Christ is what dissolves that bond to the law, and now we're in a new relationship with Christ. Okay? The law is also limited. It can command righteousness, it can condemn wickedness, but it can't solve the root problem. It can't change the heart that's been broken by sin, that is perpetually geared towards disobedience, towards rebellion, towards self-exaltation, fill in the blank. The law was never meant to be the ultimate way to relate to God. It was never meant to be the ultimate way to live righteously before God. Jesus Christ supersedes the law, right? Back in the beginning of the chapter, he talks about you're now in a new relationship. This old one has been dissolved and you've been brought into something new that you might bear fruit for God. And so with that in mind, I just want to take a step back and just ask the simple question, if what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 7 is true, why do so many of us still have that dogged tendency to think that the good spiritual life is going to be by following a list of requirements, of rules, of expectations? Right? Like I, I think about my time whenever I was here, um, and I was sitting in this church, and it felt like the most random thing to me. I had honestly had kind of avoided church, but my older sister was here, and I ended up here mostly because she <laughs> asked me to walk with her. <clears throat> and I remember sitting here and listening to Kyle preach <coughs> and thinking, man, some of that sounds good. You know, like a clean conscience, freedom from guilt, a relationship with the living God sounds amazing. And then I would go to community group and these guys who were walking with Jesus uh, and talking about what that was like and just being honest and free and open and loving and kind. And I would see that and I would think, man, that looks pretty good. And all the while I'm thinking, like, I'm still a believer, right? Um, But there was something that was hindering me. It was holding me back at that point from just going full on out and pursuing Christ. And it was lust that was ruling over my life. It had been years since I just felt enslaved to pornography. And I remember sitting in here and thinking, that sounds so good, I believe this, but there's this really significant problem and I need to clean that up before I, before I pursue that. Like I need to, I need to fix this And I need to be this kind of person before I can genuinely pursue Christ. So maybe there's some of you in here tonight who are in a similar boat, right? You've been coming here, uh, you've been hearing the word preached, you've been involved in the praises of God, and there's that tug on you like, yes, I want this. I want to pursue Christ. I want to know him. And yet, there are some significant ways that you feel hindered. 
And maybe you have your own list of things that you need to clean up. Like, I need to stop sleeping with my boyfriend or with my girlfriend. I need to stop going out and getting hammered on the weekend. Fill in the blank, whatever that is. There might be that list of requirements that you feel like, I need to clean this up, and then we can get serious about this. And what I want to tell you is that is a lie, and it is not the gospel. That is a lie, and it is not the gospel. You see, Jesus Christ is the one who stands before sinners and says, Come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He is not the one who says, Hey, clean your act up and then come, and then we'll make a shiny church where everybody's perfect. That is not the gospel. And so there might be a significant crowd of you in here who just need to repent of your sins and trust the Lord Jesus. Like we sang tonight, my guilty past has been nailed to the cross and I am free from that. Have you taken hold of that? Are you walking in that? Trying to fulfill like some sort of criteria, some sort of sense of requirements is actually counterproductive if we look at Romans 7. It's actually more likely going to produce more rebellion. And so... The answer is to turn to the Lord Jesus. In him, the face of God smiles at you and says, come on, come on home. And then there's others of you who are in the boat that I was in the last two years I was here, right? Um, I'd been walking with the Lord for a couple years by that point, and right around this time, and it was funny, I was thinking about this, Terrell and I were kind of in the same boat in this season, where we were just dry and weary and frustrated and it just, it was this season of continued sense of where is the Lord? Where's my passion for Christ? Where's my purpose in, in what I'm doing? Um, and I remember both of us would just compare lists like, what are you doing, man? Oh, I'm waking up early. Oh, okay, how's that working? Not good. Well, I'm, I'm reading the scriptures more. What are you learning? Eh, not much. <laughs> I'm praying more. Do you feel the Lord? Not really, you know? And so we had this list of rules and requirements that we were trying to live up to and saying, if we just do these things, things are going to be so much better with God. Like if we just meet these criteria, we're going to be at the good place in the spiritual life. And again, what I want to tell you is that is a lie and your growth and godliness is no different than the way that you began it. It's no different than to turn to Christ and cast yourself upon his mercy and say, Lord, help me. I'm unable. The starting place, whether we are thinking about walking with Jesus for the first time or whether we're walking with him and we're just experiencing frustration and want to walk in holiness, whatever boat we're in, the starting point is never to say, let me just fulfill this criteria. Let me just get to a better place by my actions. The answer is always, Turn and look upon the smiling face of God in Jesus Christ. He's done everything that's necessary and he's calling you, beckoning you to the table. And so, just as a close, the takeaway for tonight, a life of striving after moral requirements does not produce true righteousness. A life founded on the love of God and the grace of God in Jesus Christ does. That's the starting point, and that's what continues to sustain. So while the law can only condemn, 
and command. Jesus Christ is the one who came and sought out sinners, who dined with rejects, who cleansed the dirty, who forgave the unforgivable. A Christian is first and foremost a forgiven sinner and not a righteous rule keeper. A forgiven sinner and not a righteous rule keeper.